Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Timothy George wrote an article in First Things Magazine online entitled, No Squishy Love. He began that article by noting a significant book that came out in 1934. I quote, in his 1934 book, The Kingdom of God in America, H. Richard Niebuhr depicted the creed of liberal Protestant theology, which was called modernism in those days, in these famous words. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Dr. George then went on to take note of a rather significant event that occurred this summer. Sin, judgment, cross, even Christ have become problematic terms in much contemporary theological discourse. But nothing so irritates and confounds as the idea of divine wrath. Recently, the wrath of God became a point of controversy in the decision of the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Song to exclude from its new hymnal the much-loved song, In Christ Alone, by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. The committee wanted to include this song because it is being sung in many churches, Presbyterian and otherwise. But they could not abide this line from the third stanza till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For this they wanted to substitute, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. But the authors of the hymn insisted on the original wording and the committee voted nine to six that in Christ alone would not be among the 800 or so items in their new hymnal. One cannot read Romans chapter 3 and come away not recognizing that the wrath of God is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. It is a part of the nature and the character of God, and when rightly understood, the love of God is magnified even greater in light of the truth of His wrath. Previously, we studied from Romans 3, 21 through 25 about 12 great doctrines related to the issue of justification, 12 great truths related to the doctrine of justification. We saw that justification of sinners cannot be obtained by good works. We saw that justification of sinners was promised to us by God. We saw that justification of sinners results in a right relationship with God. We saw that justification of sinners is only through faith in Jesus Christ. We saw justification of sinners is something every person needs, and we saw that justification of sinners is by grace through redemption or through the redemption of Jesus Christ. This morning, 
I want to cover the last six great truths concerning the doctrine of justification from Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 25. We begin right where we ended just a moment ago through singing and through the visualization of that song. We come to the issue of the wrath of God and the fact that the death of Christ satisfied that wrath. Number seven, justification of sinners is possible through a blood satisfaction. Verse 25 of Romans 3, God put forward His Son as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Justification of sinners is possible through a blood satisfaction. C.E.B. Cranfield said that it is here that we discover, quote, the innermost meaning of the cross. And, of course, related to that innermost meaning is the idea of propitiation, a word that comes from the Hiloskamai word group in the New Testament. The word itself means to atone, to satisfy. In certain contexts, it even means to have mercy. The idea is simply this. Jesus, by his death, by his blood, satisfied the wrath of God and thereby turned it away from us as it was poured out on him. You see, God saw His glory despised and rejected by sinners like you and me. He saw His worth and value made light of and His great name dishonored and profaned by our sins. But rather than vindicate His value and glory by slaying sinners and pouring out His wrath on them, He instead slayed His Son and poured out His wrath on Jesus. The text is clear. It is by His blood. It was by a a death, a murder, a bloody and brutal thing. As some of the old evangelists used to say, there was a killing at Calvary, and the one who was killed was none other than the Son of God. He was not being murdered in the sense of simply being a martyr. No, He was dying as a Savior. And who killed Him? Was it the Jews? They had their hand in it. Was it the Gentile Roman authorities? They had their hand in it. Was it you and me? Yes, we had our hand in it. But when everything is said and done, read the text. God put forward His Son as a propitiation by His blood. It is God who put His Son on public display and exhibition. When everything is said and done, when it comes to Calvary, it is very clear and very simple, God did it. God set His Son before the whole world, and He poured out His wrath on Him at the cross as an incontrovertible display of His grace and love for sinners. In fact, it is here that we receive the answer to what was the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane? that our Lord so desperately wanted to avoid? Was it the pain and the suffering that He would endure physically? No, not at all. It was rather that in that moment He would be separated from His Father and the wrath of God would be poured out on Him as our satisfaction, as our substitute. God killed His Son instead of killing you and me. The nature of God demanded satisfaction and the love of God made satisfaction. And it is vitally important as we study this idea of propitiation that we recognize there are no pagan overtones in what takes place at Calvary as God indeed sacrificed His Son. Listen to what John Stott said. He puts it so very well. 
It would be hard to exaggerate the difference between the pagan and the Christian views of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings tried to placate their bad-tempered deities with their own paltry offerings according to their ability. But according to Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated His own holy wrath through the gift of His own dear Son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Thus God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. I like that. God Himself gave Himself to save us from Himself. So we understand when it comes to the doctrine of justification that God who is holy and just and who demands a satisfaction for sin is Himself the one who provided it for us. As Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 and verse 10 say so well, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. So the Lord Jesus is our propitiation. He is our satisfaction with the Father. Out of love for the glory of God and the good of sinners like all of us, Jesus absorbed the full measure of the wrath of God that was rightfully ours. He experienced our hell for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. Number eight. Justification of sinners in Christ demonstrates God's righteousness. Again, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to, re- to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over sins or over former sins. It was to show His righteousness in the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The penal substitutionary death of Jesus that satisfied the wrath of God and made it possible to justify sinners, Paul says, is a clear vindication of the righteous character of God. In fact, if I were to try to summarize for us this morning what he is saying in verse 25, part B, in verse 26, it is simply this. The death of God's Son on the cross as a payment for sin served to vindicate how God had dealt with sin in the past prior to the cross. In other words, in his forbearance, he had for a time suspended, or if you like, postponed the pouring out of his wrath on sinners. And therefore, it seemed at least for a time that sin was not that big a deal to God. It was something that was not all that much of a concern of his, but then the cross proved that that is not so. And the death of His Son demonstrates that God indeed cares deeply about His righteousness. He cares deeply about His justice. And yes, He takes sin very, very seriously. Curtis Vaughn, who taught uh, Greek and New Testament for many years at Southwestern Seminary, says it so well in his little commentary on Romans. His justice, it seemed to them, slumbered. Slumbered in the face of wicked deeds, which obviously deserved punishment. The cross, however, stands as the divine vindication of the righteousness of God in reference to His treatment of sins committed 
in the foregoing ages of the world. So at Calvary, God demonstrated in the cross His righteousness. He demonstrated in the cross that He is just. He demonstrated that He also justifies anyone who trusts in Jesus and Jesus alone as their justification before God. Thus, the justification of sinners does not compromise the moral character of God because Calvary vindicates Him. He has and will deal with sin. How do we know? Paul says very simply, just look to the cross. And so once more we see the truth, don't we? The person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything because they stand right with God. But the person who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. Number nine, justification of sinners through Christ excludes any personal boasting. Verses 27 through 31 highlight what some have called the grand results of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, and very simply, it is for the glory of God alone. Look at verse 27, all right? Then what becomes of our boasting? If we are justified by grace, if we're justified by faith, if we're justified by the perfect atoning work of Christ, then what becomes of boasting? It's excluded. Uh, There's no place for boasting save, as Paul says in Galatians, in the cross of Christ. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. In other words, Paul again makes it crystal clear we are saved and justified by God and by grace, not by man and works. Justified by God and by grace, not by man and not by works. We're saved by faith in Jesus. Not obedience to the law, whether it be the law of creation uh, that we see through natural revelation or the law written on our conscience or even the law of Scripture. No, we are saved by faith in Christ. So any personal boasting is excluded, shut out, and shut down. In fact, it's really quite uh, important for us to understand that this day just how much God hates our boasting and how much God hates our pride. Why? Well, I've highlighted seven reasons for you. One, it caused both the fall of Lucifer and Adam. Two, it is the root cause of sin. Three, it is the greatest problem of the human race. Four, it suppresses the truth that God is the greatest reality in all the universe. Five, it turns humans made in God's image into fools. Six, it says, I can save myself without God's help. And seven, it says, God really did not need to kill His Son for our salvation. No works calls attention to the worker and what he does. But faith calls attention to the one we trust and what he does. My hero in the faith, Adrian Rogers, says it so well. Until you come to the end of you, you won't come to the beginning of him. Salvation is not rooted in the merit of man, but in the mercy of God. And again, if you come swaggering to God as a prince, you'll go away as a beggar. But if you come as a beggar, you will go away as a prince. Number ten, justification of sinners through Christ is something God provides for all. Look again with me there at verse 28 and 29. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? No, He is not the God of 
Is he not also the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. One more time. For we hold that one, anyone, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Paul's point here is simple, isn't it? God saves all sinners in exactly the same way. Hear me, hear me well. There is not a Jewish plan and a Gentile plan, or for that matter, any other artificial uh, distinctive a fallen human race might devise. All human persons must come by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, or <clears throat> they do not come at all. In other words, very much echoing the truth of John 14:6, there's only one way to be justified by and with God, but even though there's only one way, Anyone can come. It is right here, very simply embedded, that you find the missionary impulse that Paul will develop more fully when he gets to Romans chapter 15 because the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is made possible for anyone. Is it only for the Jews? No. He is also the God of, and I don't like this translation at all. If it were my Bible, it would not say Gentiles. It's the Greek word ethne in my Bible. I've marked it out, and I said, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the nations? Because it's the exact same word that you find in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So, yes, he is the God of the nations also as well. And so even here you have embedded the truth of the gospel and its necessity to go to every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And again, John Piper, as he is so eloquently able to, sets it exactly right, that God is the God of the nations, means he is ready to justify anyone, anywhere, from any nation, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is one way of salvation for all the nations. Therefore, God is God of the nations. Because he has made a way for them all the same way, and it is the way of grace. Number 11, justification of sinners through Christ is a testimony to the oneness of God. Verse 30, God is one, and who, he, he, he is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised uncircumcised through faith as well. He is the God of the Gentiles, yes. And since he is one, he will justify the Jew, the circumcised, and he will justify the nations, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, and he does it both ways, the same way he does it by faith. The one way of salvation is grounded, interestingly, in the fact that God is one. Since he is a, a single God, a, a, a one God, then his way of salvation is one as well. It's one in essence, and it's also one in plan. Since there's only one God to whom all persons must give an account, that means the means of justification is the same for all as well. One God means one way. One Savior means one way. One sacrifice means one way. There is only one way. We again in a day of pluralism, cannot back up or back off from the doctrine of the exclusivity of the gospel as the only means whereby people are saved. If that is not true, 
And it is possible for people to be saved by some other means, perhaps through their response to uh, natural revelation or their response to God speaking in their conscience. Then we don't need to go to South Sudan with David Kaya. We just need to say, you guys are on your own. God will take care of it. You don't need to hear the gospel. You don't need to know about Jesus. If that is true, then being a missionary is being an idiot. And what a waste of money and lives and resources. But if there is really only one way, then it is worth every financial sacrifice. It is worth every ounce of energy that we give it. And yes, it is worth putting your life on the line for others that they might too come to know the same glorious salvation that you have found so lavishly and so graciously in Jesus. Now, the text clearly implies, doesn't it, that uh, all religions are not the same. It clearly teaches us that all religions are not true. It clearly teaches us that all religions do not get you to heaven. And again, it's interesting, he grounds this in the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, God's oneness, and yet God's three in oneness, which will always be, always be, always be a stumbling block for Jews, for Muslims, and for secularists as well. But out of love for their souls, we will not back up or back off from affirming the exclusivity of the gospel and the truth that Jesus and only Jesus is the way to the one true and living God. Finally, number 12. Justification of sinners through Christ establishes the goodness of God's law. Verse 31. Do we overthrow the law by this faith, this faith in uh, the sacrifice and the satisfaction of Jesus? Paul says, no way, by no means. Actually, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Quickly, God's law is good and perfect. The problem was never with the law. The problem was always with you and me, sinners who could not meet the demands of God's law. But what we have here now is a perfect law-honoring Savior. Let me say that again. We have a perfect law-honoring Savior whose righteousness is imputed to us by faith. And by that act alone... We honor the law, we vindicate the law, and we establish the law. Furthermore, Paul tells us that the law of faith always leads to another law, that being the law of love and also the law of service. Now, we're reminded again by uh, the Reformers, and on uh, this coming Thursday, uh, Dr. Finn will be preaching, and uh, he'll be also emphasizing the importance of the Reformation. October the 31st is not really Halloween. It's really Reformation Day. And the Reformers taught us very clearly that we are saved not by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that does work. Uh, we are saved, not, uh, but we are saved by, by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And so Paul's argument is the law is not rendered null and void by faith. No way. In fact, accepted, I now delight to obey his law and loved, I long to serve God and others. And if you'll just keep reading in Romans, you'll find in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, where he nails down the argument that he is making here. And here's what he says. You see it on the screen. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does uh, does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I have seen the wonderful truth of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, lived out many times as I've heard the stories of many brothers and sisters share about their coming to Christ. But I think there's one particular experience in my own life that makes this so very, very clear as to just how lavishly graceful and how lavishly free is this grace. I've shared with some of you on a couple of occasions that Charlotte was born to the home of alcoholic parents. Divorced when she was little, put in a children's home when she was nine, lived there till she was uh, 18. Unless something happened on his deathbed that we don't know, her father died lost. Her mother, though, back in 2005, became very, very ill. She had been a chain smoker all of her life. She had serious emphysema, and she had been... Uh, uh, an alcoholic, so her body was just ravaged by those twin killers. And we received a phone call when we were over at the house uh, in our family room that her mother was at the uh, Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta up in the ICU unit and that she was dying. And the only reason they called her, she'd been in the hospital for several weeks, but they had just not gotten around to calling us. Uh, They they, they wanted to get Charlotte to agree to sign off on a non-resuscitation order so that when she did, uh, her heart stopped. They wouldn't try to revive her because she, she was not going to live more than a few more days. I'll never forget, as we were in our family room, Charlotte looking at me and with tears running down her face saying, you know, I can hardly bear the thought of my mother dying and going to hell. And I just don't know what to do. And so we, we do what you do. You, you pray. And we got on our knees and we prayed. And then afterwards, she looked at me. She said, uh, do you think Dr. Merrick James, she called him James, do you think James would go witness to my mother? And I said, well, I think he would if I asked him. And so I called uh, Dr. Merrick, James Merritt, and he said, oh, I'll be glad to. This was on a Tuesday afternoon, late Tuesday afternoon, about 5 o'clock. He said, I leave in the morning to go out of town, but I get back on Thursday night. And so Friday, I'll go down to Grady Hospital, and I'll see Miss Ramsey. And I thanked him, and I said, you know, she really is sick, but that, that'll be fine. And we hung up the phone. We prayed again. And uh, you'd have to know Dr. Merritt to understand what happened next. I, I was not surprised. Uh, I received a phone call back from him, and he said, you know, I, I don't think uh, I need to wait. I'm going to go now. So he drove 40 miles from up in Decula, Georgia, into downtown Atlanta, went up into the ICU unit of Grady Hospital, shared the gospel with Charlotte's mother, and on her deathbed, she prayed to receive Christ, and the righteousness of King Jesus was immediately imputed to that lady. She never did one thing, really, in terms of a work to serve our Lord. She lived most of her life far from God, even hating God. 
And yet at the very end, and by the way, she did die just a few days later. At the very end, looking to Christ in faith, giving herself completely and totally to the amazing, marvelous grace of God, Jesus became her satisfaction. God became her justification. And I'm absolutely convinced that when I get to heaven, there's going to be a lady there named Dealey Ramsey, beautiful, radiant, and lovely, because she will be robed, like I pray all of us here today will be robed, in the perfect righteousness of Christ, given to us freely as a gift of lavish love, made possible because in His body He took our place, and in His body He bore the wrath of God for each and every one of us. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? I don't think I've done justice to this great doctrine, but I've given it my best. And I know that we could spend uh, uh, hours and days and weeks reflecting upon all that we have because of your justifying work made possible through the perfect atoning work of Jesus. And so, Lord, as we uh, come to the end of this study, we simply want to say to you this day, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that... Your righteousness demanded satisfaction and your love provided satisfaction. And that the Lord Jesus loved us enough to step in between and allow you to pour your wrath out on him instead of us. We will spend all of eternity thanking you and praising you for that. It will never be enough, but it will be a joy. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.